Welcome to Risk Roundup. Since energy drives economic growth, the power grid has always had a profound impact on nation's economic survival, security, and sustainability. Now supported by advances in many technologies, as the Internet of Things transforms the way nations manage energy through smart grids and smart meters, energy industry is now able to automate most energy management processes. As a result, nations are now able to lay the foundation of an integrated energy market which can work for everyone, consumers and uh, as well as suppliers, and has diverse energy sources and which ensures that energy supply can meet demand and bring sustainability to nation's economic engine. So as nations learn how to use energy more efficiently and try to put renewables and smart technology at the heart of their energy system for its security, the emerging revolution and evolution of power grid will likely have a profound impact on each nation's economy, survival, security, and sustainability. Smart grids are on its way to allowing energy to keep flowing where and when it's needed and is able to make the best use of all renewable energy sources. So as nations witness transformative changes to the way electricity is produced, transmitted and used, it is important to understand and evaluate what are the current and future trends in technology that are transforming the grid and what will be the future of global energy system. To discuss nation's journey from traditional grid towards future grid and the smart grid to smart energy further, I'm delighted to welcome Ravi Sitapati to Risk Roundup. Ravi is the executive chairman of BioSeries. He's an expert advisor on smart grid, smart cities, and energy systems. He's a globally recognized speaker and a corporate director. He's an invited speaker internationally and has co-authored over 50 technical papers in the areas of smart grid. He has also received numerous honors and citations, including Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal, Fellow Canadian Academy of Engineering, Hydro and Presidents Award, Honor Roll of the Shastri Institute, Honorary Fellow Centennial College, Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce, and so much more. So he's based in Canada. Welcome, Rory. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much and uh, pleasure to be a part of this program. Wonderful, Ravi. So as technology transforms everything, how would you describe today's electric power grid across nations? I think as in other verticals, if you take the financial side vertical, you take the transportation vertical, they've all undergone phenomenal changes and are continuing to do so. The last leg perhaps is the power vertical or what we call the energy vertical. It's been a little late coming to the game. But now, thanks to the evolving technologies, the ability for these technologies to come together, stitch together, it is now implementable. And therefore, the power grid should now think of how it will change its architecture to enable all these things that are already at our doorstep. And it's happening, perhaps a little slow, but it's happening. Yes, very true. It is a little slow, but I mean, think of it, it's the largest machine on earth, right? The people say that electric grid is the largest machine on earth. So bringing a change to this largest machine is not that easy. It has so many variables. So as we evaluate many of these variables from cost to physical wear and tear and technical obsolescence, or safety, security, sustainability, and meeting the power needs of respective nation citizens, what do you think is threatening the reliability of the current form of power grid the most? Is it the technology? No, I think there are two things. 
One, what is really threatening is the architecture, the legacy architecture that was put in place 100 years ago. It's like the rail tracks versus surface road transport. Road transport is more manual. You can change, you can change the vehicle. A rail track is a rail track is a rail track. It hasn't undergone much changes. So in a way, the grid for economical reasons and for power delivery laid its railroad tracks up to the door of the customer. And now the same legacy system has got to be rethought to say, okay, how do I convert a rail track into a road that allows multiple vehicles to ply on that as opposed to a single vehicle? So it's sort of an analogy, if you will. So the question really that threatens us, I think, is one, the legacy system. The second is a regulatory system that actually is slower to understand. It's a statute of law. The law says lowest cost power, and therefore that has to undergo some changes. Climate change clearly, clearly in the last seven years has told us how things that we never expected is now coming four or five times a year sometimes. And in North America, Europe, everywhere, Asia, we've seen this. So the question is, how will this new architecture change itself using the technologies that are already are at our doorstep to be able to enable the new architecture, which is a two-way power flow as opposed to a single-way power flow? That's very true. And that's an excellent point that you made that now. And since commercial electric power grids have become increasingly fragile and vulnerable to extended disruptions, as we see across nations, what technological, non-technological improvements in grid infrastructure do you think is absolutely essential across nations? Yeah, I think, like I said, the legacy system allows for no breakage. If you break the wire, you lose power. And it is not intelligent enough to break at points and to rejoin itself, like much like fracture mechanics. So we need to re-architect the grid such that it breaks itself into pieces when needed, islands itself and continues to work, whether that be a condominium, whether that be a neighborhood, whether that be a city, and then rejoins again when everything is back to normal. So resiliency is a new word you would have heard in the last several years. The ability to go down stay operable and the ability to come back up again and reconnect with your neighbors is an architecture that unfortunately today is not there in the legacy grid. So we need to provide for that in the legacy grid. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. But how easy it is to move away from the legacy infrastructure and how easy it is to transform the grid that way? Very difficult, very expensive, very investment oriented, as you just said, the largest asset operator in the world. And therefore, it is difficult to ask the question, what do I leave behind to do new? And as long as you keep using the word, what do I leave behind, it bothers the balance sheets of many, many operators. So the question is exactly like the railroad. When the transport sector on the surface came along, it never ever talked about the balance sheet of the railroads and what it left behind. It still does what it does. And the transport sector today is 85% of our goods and services. In a way, we need to rethink this and say, okay, what is it that we want out of our new legacy systems? What is it that we're going to leave behind? And if there is a little bit of a financial hit, we have to say, what do we substitute it with as a new business opportunity, as opposed to crying over spilt milk? Because the crying over spilt milk kind of syndrome is where the difficulty is because you constantly keep looking back at your balance sheet and saying, oh my God, I lost 50% of my balance sheet. But in Europe today, wires company are losing a lot of their value on the balance sheet because of new technology. So you can come, as they say in North American terms, 
kicking and screaming to the station or you can come willingly one of the two so it's that's why we are yes very true and i across nations as we see that the ownership of the grid is not always the government's owning it or you know uh, nations owning that it's both you know public as well as private so when the private industry owns the grid uh, you know many components of the grid across nations is difficult to drive change because they always look at the shareholder value and you know what will happen to the stock you know if uh, there's have to show such you know big expenses so the, it's very complex because of the you know nature of the ownership across nations now as technology drives change in the power industry and it is uh, driving you know each component of the uh, industry what are the current and future trends in technology that you see will you know fundamentally transform the grid not only what we are seeing today but in the coming tomorrow the emerging technologies which ones are do you think that will fundamentally transform the grid i think fundamentally three things have already happened and two more things are happening one is the cost of sensors have come down dramatically telecommunication costs have come down so dramatically it's fallen by you know 10 orders of magnitude in the last 15 years with all the telecommunications that we have and the third is the pro- processing power of pcs is increased by another 10 orders of magnitude so all the three put together we have devices today that can actually allow you to do things in a very different way as fast if not faster the question is how do you architect it number one the second thing that's happening is customer choice like in the financial vertical we saw that how what's changed in the financial vertical due to customer choice in the transportation and other sectors in the fast moving goods we are seeing customer choice so that customer choice is now coming about in the power sector how is coming by way of rooftop solar that's actually falling in price we've got smart inverters that actually are also falling in price and we have energy storage that at the moment is a little more expensive but it's falling in price so somebody is going to put these three four things together and say i don't need the grid for let's say 80% of my time you the grid i need you to price it for 20% of the time and the grid should be able to have an answer as opposed to saying i've got a fixed cost and then therefore i will levy you anyway so it's it's a question of a paradigm shift as to what used to be should not be what it should be going forward yes very true and i also see two other you know variables playing here one is the democratization of information that we see because of the internet you know all the knowledge is out there and then the do it yourself movement we don't see at this point that the uh, grid or get developing you know or producing electricity is uh, uh, entitled for only you know large players even small small players you know individuals are also emerging who are trying to you know bring innovations in this sector so these two moments i think you know are also fundamentally playing a bigger role in how the transformation happens so uh, how do you think are all these ongoing technological non technological changes that we see across nations for the power grid affecting the business operations distributions and supply model of the power grid's participants including all you know the energy producers as well as the users i think three things so if you look at we also enables companies for technology development and we are bringing in as many utility oriented tools right into a box that comes into a house so if you take the smart inverter today it can be enhanced to do a lot of things that the utility would like you to do which you couldn't do 5 years ago so we are now telling the utility that you know by putting this inside the house not only will i have choices energy storage rooftop pv etc 
but I could also sell my services to you when you need me to do certain things. And that the utility at the moment has not sort of caught on yet because part of the regulation says you will not allow free, you know, sort of free fall control in the network wires. It's a big architectural change for allowing everybody to take charge. And, and that has not come about in the regulatory stream. The utility would like to keep all that under its own control. So it's now providing what's called a star architecture where through its SCADA systems, it comes to your house, tells you what to do. You either agree, not agree, and you go back. But the true retail system is where you will do things autonomously and the grid doesn't have to be in the bedroom, so to speak, wanting to know everything that you did behind the mirror. And, and I think that is a big paradigm shift of giving up control, but the technology for giving up, enabling that is exists today. It exists right today, in fact. I can do VAR support for voltage control. I can do my own frequency balancing. All that through boxes that can just sit inside my garage. So it's do you see that trend all across nations or only in few nations? It comes across largely first in the developed world because of price premiums. So California, you see it. But the technology developers, by the way, are not in the North American stream. They all come from East Asia. And so it is made in East Asia for the North American or the West European market. And as the prices begin to fall, it then gets adopted in other parts of the world as well. So it's a very different play between who thinks of it and who uses it. It's surprising that East Asia has got such, or Asia Pacific, has got such a large play in that domain knowledge of what needs to be done. Yes, very true, very true. Now, each nation's power grid is at a critical juncture. I mean, uh, all of all the nations are trying to figure out that, you know, what next step they should be taking as it faces so many risks, but it also has so many opportunities to improve efficiency and reduce environmental impact and enhance security and resilience because of all these uh, amazing, you know, funda fundamental transformative changes that are coming because of the technology transformation. So how are nations determining appropriate balance between this, all these competing interests to enable not only digitization, but also decentralization and modernization of this electric power system? Uh, two parts. The emerging markets are actually have a much better sort of blank canvas to play with. They don't have the legacy systems. They don't need to bolt it on to the old systems and make it work. They don't have all the history behind it. So in my view, the, the developing world, which did not have that much of reliability and electric power supply, can actually do things a little faster, much like the wireless that came on and took that part of the world. The second is it's a tough slug to say that a nation must have a roadmap and the roadmap is uniformly across its own nation. So typically what happens is you have a very high architectural roadmap for the country. It then breaks down into regions and from regions to utilities and each utility tends to have its roadmap. And that roadmap can be slightly different, sometimes maybe even disconnected from the larger roadmap. But the bigger question is we, for example, the, the SARC countries are doing a smart grid roadmap for all the seven members of the SARC nation, India, Bhutan, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Mauritius. And each one is different. So you take the strengths of each of the cylinders that it's firing on, and then you say, what do I do to make things happen? And therefore, when I look at the smart grid roadmap, they're all different. Different pieces of cloth stitched differently, different colors, and therefore it's now looking like a mosaic as opposed to one. 
Now, that exactly is what happened in North America, even within the states, within the United States, the provinces within Canada. Each one has got a different smart grid roadmap. And within each of the state and the provinces, each utility has got its own wish list, which is slightly different. Like California is different from Arizona. Florida has got a different take on it. And say, you know, the Carolinas have got a different take on it. And so they all have different, different aspects based on what generation they produce. The Ohio coal belt will never give up Ohio. It's got you know, a lot of coal in it. So it will be fossil based to some extent. So the key question is you must allow for that variance while you still try to overarchingly balance what the national needs are. And I think it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. It is tough. You are absolutely right about that. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, two-way communication. So uh, it seems that these digital technologies, uh, it now allows the two-way communication, as you mentioned before, between the utility and its customers. And the uh, it also allows the sensing of the transmission lines in what makes perhaps the grid smart. So is that what is making the grid smart or there is more to the smartness of the grid? And what where do you see more technological advances that needs to be, you know, in place to make the grid, you know, do the things that it needs to do to be effectively very smart and takes the power grid to its next level? Largely, the innovation is being driven in what I call the medium voltage and low voltage, the distribution grid. It essentially was running blind, and that's because it didn't need to be. The grid has always been what I call requisite smart. In other words, it plays to what the technologies are, but nobody did anything for distribution in the last 50, 60 years. So it was in its way. The transmission was always considered to be capital intensive, and therefore it has its requisite smartness. The key, I think, is architecture. So a lot of the stuff that was only viable for transmission today is available in a box top or a tabletop on the distribution. A good example is phaser measurement unit. A phaser measurement unit is so critical and has been used in the transmission system for fast acting devices in the transmission sector. The PNNL system of the United States, for example, has got phaser measurement units all across North America, including Canada. That today is available in a cube of four inches to four inches by four inches, is available for any distribution person with almost the same spec. And today there are a lot of case studies that say how by using the phaser measurement unit, I can detect something a hundred times faster than what I do today. So it's coming. The question is, how do I architect it in a what I call as a hierarchical topology? That hierarchical topology is what's holding the distribution back. It needs to be a peer-to-peer topology in a way like the internet, not quite like the internet, but like the internet, where people can connect and disconnect. And there is no master that tells you, I need permission to do so, and I need to do this. It should all architect by itself. So that whole notion of peer-to-peer has not come in the electricity sector because the legacy system is still very hierarchical. And, and therefore, that needs to come. Second, on a telecom, we talk of Wi-Fi. Everybody uses Wi-Fi in a big way today. Today, Wi-Fi 6.0, which will be launched in a month from now, is so fast that all the Wi-Fi ones that we did 15 years ago in the electric power system is almost useless. So the same smart meter that was on a poorly low bandwidth Wi-Fi system today can actually have a much faster throughput in the new architected system. So I think technology is catching up. The question is, 
where do you draw the line where do you get your business case and then from the business case how do i extract value to be able to return it back to the shareholder and that is the biggest risk that utilities do not know they are used to a 40 year payback and they don't know how to architect the 6 year payback yes yes there are still a lot of unknowns and they are trying to figure out you know how to respond to those uh, challenges but uh, if we talk about the uh, we talked about the technological changes uh, that are happening but at the same time in parallel we are also seeing these distributed energy resources such as solar and wind that are challenging the you know emerging smart grid because now there are more producers and you know anybody can produce electricity you know if you just have the uh, solar panels on your rooftop so how is that you know how are nations defining how to respond to those kind of uh, distributed energy resources uh, production challenges that are coming their way correct so yesterday there was a talk when i was giving a lecture to the asean utilities 11 utilities of the asia pacific i was on a skype call giving this talk so you're absolutely right distributed energy is going to be the way that will shape the wires business it should be plug and play but right now you have a distributed energy available but to connect i have to take your permission and the question is why do i need to take your permission when i'm connecting it inside my house and that is the challenge the consumer is saying why do i have to stand in line and take people's permission because it's sitting right behind the mirror which is inside my house in a way so that have we have not figured out because electricity in its complexity of you know what we call power quality gets impeded and there are a lot of these technical papers including some that i've written talks about it because it is a system which your neighbor affects the other neighbor the other neighbor affects the other neighbor so the question is how do i delink it so when i talked about the boxes which i told you can enable utility based controls from your own house to be enabled is the way to go so it will automatically control itself as an autonomous unit as long as i don't violate a grid code so which is the voltage the frequency the whatever so i should be able to do it so if there are boxes that are certified as we have today they are certified it takes a leap of faith to say okay let's try this in a neighborhood where all these autonomous boxes will hold the piece of wire to a power quality and the utility doesn't need to get involved in the day to day minute to minute transaction of people bringing in distributed resources whether that be load whether that be generation or it can be electric vehicles whatever they want to do it is resilient enough to take all those changes and we haven't got to that yet because it's a leap of faith the grid code right now prevents you from giving total autonomy to all the consumers and and we need to work that through the regulatory system to say how do we have faith have we tried enough have we done all these uh, you know pilots and how does it work right and so it it's it's a matter of time it's coming but it it's a matter of time that the regulator will have to walk step by step i sit on the european regulators association where this is a big discussion saying how will the regulator come along with me because the regulator is largely a lawyer a legal expert or he or she is a financial expert or a member of the government they are not generally sort of technical simply because their job is not to be technical the statutes of the regulatory system says you shall regulate to the lowest cost and so they look for that uh, aspect of it so it 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 will come i think today enough of pieces exist in the marketplace to come if you look at the town of elberg in netherlands you look at uh, jeju island in korea they're all moving towards these autonomous communities where all these distributed resources is plug and play and 
they can prove that the wires are not getting hampered the way we think they will get hampered. So it's a, it's a kind of a nightmare scenario, which we need to sort of bring it down to reality. Sure, no, and you made some excellent points there. But I'm also thinking, you know, these are probably more complex challenges because uh, if everybody is producing, you know, electricity, we don't know how much load will come from where and what will be the nation's requirement of electricity. So how how are nations going to make it intelligent to understand that, you know, how much electricity needs to be produced because you cannot just, depending, depending on uh, what... Uh, form of, you know, electricity is produced, whether it's solar or, you know, whether it's a, uh, any other, you know, form of uh, production. But how do we know how much to produce and where would, if there is, let's say, extra overload of, you know, production, where would that electricity go? Do we have effective way to storing that uh, electricity that would be produced and the power that would not be needed in near future, but may be needed, you know, down the road? So how are we technologically playing this? How are we making this more intelligent? Complex, but hopefully the answer should be along. If you just take generation away today, just take the traditional one-way power flow. All utilities have got very good models in their control systems to correlate temperature, even in entertainment like Sunday football games, to tell you what the peak power will look like hour by hour by hour. And they track generation to, to those, those predictive peak loads, and they manage it to the minute, in fact, or to the second. So now we are adding a generation component that, of course, makes that very complex. But rules can be brought into play that says, if I generate, I should be able to go to a certain limit. And after that, if I exceed the generation limit, I should be told you can't do certain things. So there are those generation limits that would have to come. But if I choose to produce, I may have an energy storage that I will just divert it to my garage where it'll be sitting there and I can, I can store power. So this issue is coming up again and again and again as to should there be limits or should there be no limits. I think there will always be limits, but I think we should raise those limits such that it doesn't go and practically impinge on the lifestyle choices of people. So it is an issue. Now, if you take the duck curve of California, the big one, you have a duck curve here Duck curves are coming in other parts where solar PV, Australia has also got that. The question is, what do I do with the low cost solar PV during the day? But we have not created incentives for people to say, okay, let me use that low cost power during the day for doing something at a high priced side after the sun has set. So it's like load shifting, if you will. So if you allow energy storage to come in, people will charge all that in fact, and then they'll say at eight o'clock, I'm not paying 34 cents. I'm not paying 28 cents. I'm paying 4 cents. So time of use in Ontario is like that. In the day, we pay around 14 cents. Night, we are about 6 or 7 cents. But the time of use arbitrage, if you see, is still not good enough to for me to say, okay, I'll make my investment whole. So the utilities can play a part by saying, okay, you pay a monthly fee, and I will defease all the financial cost, and there will be a box That'll be there in your garage. It'll have once in a while a linkage with us. But by the way, you can save so much of money on your power bill because you will charge during the night and you will spend during the day. Or in California, you'll charge during the day and then expend it at night. That business model has not caught the utilities. They are in the regulated side of the business and they don't want to enter the service part for fear that they don't know the risk. They are not used to that risk. Relatively speaking, we have always got our 8%, 9% rate of regulated return. 
comfort life, why go into an area that we don't know much? So it's it's that kind of a paradigm. Yes, no, I understand that. And that's a very complex challenge. But irrespective of whether there is a limit or limitless you know, production of electricity, as consumers become producers of energy, it, it, it's going to bring us very complex uh, security challenges because uh, the storage unit, I mean, that, that itself uh, brings a lot of complex security challenges because we don't know what kind of security risk emerging and how to manage those security risks. And uh, not only that, the, the whole there is a whole emerging disruption uh, in this uh, energy economics because of all these different variables. So it will be interesting to see how, you know, nations uh, go forward on that. But how do you think nations should uh, go forward using energy uh, more efficiently? I mean, you gave a really good background on, you know, on that. But uh, how to put these renewables and smart technology at the heart of our energy system to bring not only the sustainability, but also security to our energy system. Correct. So the legacy pieces where you have you know, people who have built it over 100 years, they're finding it more challenging. Actually, in developing economy, they're finding it as an opportunity because they don't have anything to begin with. So you architect it the way you want. So the question in this is, there are some core pieces. So as you interconnect more, cyber physical security becomes prime because the more you connect, it's like an internet, right? The more I talk to somebody, I have a cybersecurity issue. So that's number one. Number two, if you look at the multiples of lifestyle to economic development to cost of power, when I was a younger man, it used to be about 10 times the cost of power. I've done these analysis. Today, it is anywhere from 40 to 45 times the cost of power. So it's not the power disruption, it is the impact of the power disruption that people have to value. And we see that again and again, especially in urban cities, where being without power in a high rise means no water, no elevator, no nothing. So it becomes an issue. So if you take that forward and say, how will I get this going? The notion that I have cyber physical security at the core of all these developments is a mindset that has still not come. The utilities are very well aware but the customer and the, what I call the last edge of the mile on the grid product developers have to sort of agree that this has got to be a core part of their design as opposed to just selling what they feel like. And part of the challenge is, is there. So there's a lab at NREL in Colorado, which we use in North America. And that does all the simulation on a vendor by vendor product. And so we have come to have these laboratories that says, I can take vendor A, and without giving it out in the in you know the open domain, I can say it's good, bad, or ugly. You know whether you are a class A product or a class C product. But even with that effort, we have so many products coming online that the risk of connecting what I call a non-certified product is very high. So as you go to a distributed architecture, I go to a store, I buy a store, I see a particular label. I don't know what that label means. I'm assuming it's on there. I connect it, and then you know I have a problem. Like a garage door opener. A garage door opener, the classic is, do you ever read the label? We never, we just go by. And it works. And, and in a way, the garage door opener could satisfy us today. Who knows from a cyber physical system, whether it is weak or strong, we don't know. We don't know. We just go and buy it, right? And so the same thing is happening with inverters. The same thing is happening with Wi-Fi boxes. The same thing is happening with routers. So this whole notion of firewall, this, that, needs now to be built in 
such that the consumers don't have to be worried. Plug and play, and it should automatically come up. So it's happening. On the, tra the transmission side, too, Merck SIP, you may have heard, is one such standard. It has evolved so much from the legacy system to where Merck SIP is today. And it's a, it's a standard that all the major utilities in North America, we conform to that standard to be able to connect, interconnect with each other on the transmission line. So it's coming. It's, these are all there. But on the last mile, closer to the home, uh, it, it is a little bit of a wild west right now. Sure, and it's understandable because this is an emerging, you know, uh, technological development that's happening. We are still trying to figure out where the vulnerability lies and, you know, where are the complex challenges. And especially if you look at energy industry, these it's not only just the smart meters, but also the smart appliances that... Uh, brings you know makes the threat platform you know much more complex because and much more bigger it's not just few you know uh, endpoints that we have to look at now it's uh, many different endpoints where uh, there are security vulnerabilities so we'll have to figure out uh, also you know authentication you know real time uh, authentication that would uh, help us bring security and it is just like you know energy industry going through changes the smart you know uh, grid uh, we are also facing similar challenges with the financial industry as you know nations try to go towards cryptocurrency and you know people try to put all their uh, savings or money into cryptocurrency where we we still are trying to struggle with bringing you know uh, the cyber security to or computer security uh, to each and every person or even the very literate so this uh, security especially the cyber security is a big complex challenge and as we as the efforts to modernize grid intensifies the very technologies that are that is uh, giving us the ability to modernize Organize the grid and you know make it smart and make it intelligent and make it make two-way communication and give us all these uh, extra you know amazing features to move the grid forward. Uh, they have this, you know it's giving us simultaneously you know big openings on these grid assets that were so very securely closed so far to both external and internal intruder access. So security is a big complex challenge and where where and how should be focusing on and what areas should we be focusing on especially for the security it's uh, it's we are not looking at just the i mean as we diversify and decentralize this energy grid if one way it's that you know we are trying to minimize the broader impact of the terrorist attack or you know shutting down of the power grid so, and at the same time we are also bringing very focused security risk to each and every individual and each and every component of a nation for which i don't see them uh, that they are prepared for so two answers i think you just brought that subject up in tech appliances it Ten years ago, we actually had many rounds of appliance manufacturers producing intelligent appliances that could talk to one another inside the house. How many of them are selling today? Very few. The reason is they have not been able to come to a common understanding of a common platform with a common set of standards that allows product A to talk to product B to talk to product C. It, it just hasn't evolved. So today we do not have smart appliances communicating to each other inside a house, but we have smart appliances that does what it does. You know, the washing machine, the dryer, etc. So that's number one. Number two, so, so you can imagine if large players have not been able to come together on, on a thing like this, now you are, your question, the other question you just posed, is like 100 million times bigger. And so the question is, where do we go from there? Number two, 
cybersecurity will always be an ongoing enhancement that will be required. It is not like I've built a big jailhouse and I've got all these security guards there and then nothing will happen later on, built like a bricks and mortar fortress. As you enable more and more and more, cybersecurity or different threats will also crop up which somebody has to think about what to do. So if you take the transportation sector today, we were able to get an e-boarding card. And now we don't even need a boarding card in some of the airports right now where your iris scan is the boarding card. So you, they've done away with. So today, if I go to Dubai, I don't have a boarding card. I just walk, give my iris scan, and I walk inside the country. So it's it's a freedom that I get. I cross the border in maybe five seconds. But it's something that somebody has to think about. What does this security mean in terms of the internet and other things that are connected? So that's number two. The third thing is the ability to recover. So when you talked of complex systems, and we also in our IT systems and the utility have done lots of work in the last seven to 10 years. The question is not that we will go down. There is a probability we will be attacked. The question is how quickly do we recover and how quickly do we isolate, which not was or not the theory 20 years ago. The 20 years ago theory was build a fortress around it so that nobody can enter. Today we have said, no, we have to let it open because there are you know people who use the data for a whole bunch of good reasons, but we need to watch out. So the financial industry is sort of guiding. Would you believe in the cybersecurity workshops that we have done in the last maybe two years? We have always invited financial services and transport services, the air transport services guys. How do you manage you know, large airports with all these kinds of things? And a lot of these learnings that were done four or five years ago, which are real time, is now entering the power sector. It wasn't thought through, and now it's coming into the power sector. But to answer your question, cyber threat will always occur with a lower probability, hopefully. But the ability to catch it, to recover, and to rectify is where the utility needs to understand to be able to recover, let's say, in three minutes. Will it recover in three minutes? It probably will not in the old system. It could take maybe a day, right? And so you don't want uh, you know, those kinds of issues. Yes, absolutely. No, that uh, that is at the heart of it, the quick recovery. And you know, we have we have to talk about resiliency. And uh, I mean, cybersecurity. I completely understand. You know, we there is still a long way to go before we'll be able to bring the effective cybersecurity to each and every component of a nation or in each and every systems of a nation. But uh, by the very nature. Electric grid is dispersed and includes, I mean, potentially soft targets. And like you said, we have to keep it open. So that, that's these more easily identifiable targets due to its visible presence in communities across nations. That is not something, you know, we can change. It is uh, moving forward. But due to this visibility and its extensive network, the grid is vulnerable. However, the design of the grid is probably what makes it quite resilient. So do you think that the design of the grid is bringing resiliency or will bring resiliency as we focus more on how to bring security at the design phase of the grid? Yes, it is already happening. Resiliency is already today a part of the architecture. The question I think is, do we gold plate everything right from a $100,000 piece of equipment to a $50 piece of equipment with the same standard? The old mode of thinking was, I can have one standard, and then what happens is all these new things that we talked about will not be enabled in the marketplace because every box you touch in the marketplace will be like $10,000. 
So the question is, how do I have a category which will not allow, will not be allowed to go to the next higher level to do a bigger damage? So let me take an example of a house. We now have a wireless from a garage door opener is wireless. Somebody can hack into it, but he or she should only be able to open or close the garage door. You should not be allowed to get into the electric power system from the garage. And so the box that actually takes it into the house, into the electric power meter panel, should not be, you know, it should be unhackable. At a, it probably would have a much higher cybersecurity level. So we are architecting that, in fact, to say, okay, what is the requisite level of cybersecurity, knowing fully well that there will be attacks? So if I don't lose a whole community of 3,000 people, but I may lose a house because somebody hacked through my garage door opener or through a wireless communication, it may occur. But what I have to say is I will not let the community come down, which is what the true architects of hackers would like to do. They're like they did in, in, in parts of Eastern Europe, where they took out a country for about three days. And, and you don't want that. But so the, the question is, there is always a risk. It'll always evolve. And there's always a recovery. And I think it's a continuous process, as with internet hackers. I mean, it, it never stops. And I don't think it'll ever stop. No, that's fair. I absolutely agree to that. I mean, the security risk will always remain, but we have to figure out how to quickly, you know, uh, come out of that and how to make our systems resilient. So how should nations approach not only security risk, but security resilience of their energy generation, this transmission, distribution and delivery systems and which new security or resilience protection methods and technologies do you think are still needed to accommodate bringing these uh, smart grid resiliency requirements? I think at the bulk power level, you take the centralized generators, you take the large bulk power transmitters, it's more physical than cyber because it's a block system Nobody can enter into that system. It remains within the utility. Generally, 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 you'll not be able to ever get in on the telecom or on the IT side of it. But as you come down to distributed energy resources, which chips away at the centralized large generation, like Denmark, for example, you will find that by not having centralized generation, I actually have better security. The fact that you can't put you know, 3,000 things down, whereas I can take one power plant off with one incident, is itself an increased security. But I have an issue that they are also distributed, that I need to ensure that its level of security is different from that of protecting, let's say, a nuclear power plant or a thermal power plant, a big thermal power plant. So it's happening. So I think on the transmission, the, what I call the bulk electric side, it's always been secure. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. It's only known to the people who need to know right from the operator to everybody. It's on the distribution side, as we get to distributed energy resources, the ability for people to plug and play, the ability for retail markets. We talked of you know blockchain you, I mean, as, as another way. All that is to enable this freedom of the market. And if we open it up, then only we can enable the freedom of the market. But at the same time, we need to ensure that you know, people don't come and hack. So it is a two-way street. On one side, technologies are ready, banging at our door saying, I have rooftop PV, I've got wind, I've got biomass, I have whole energy storage all coming, but you're not letting me in. And so we have to open it up so that the whole retail sector is, I think, way to completely re requires a new architecture. And that is what currently the thinking is. 
So if you then go the way of Denmark for every country, let's say, every house is a producer. Every house is a consumer. I then decide what I will sell, what I will produce, what time I produce, what do I do. I have that, in fact, today in my house, I can architect it for a 10 kilowatt system right here today. And, and there are papers that say, you know what, what is the level of energy storage I need? I can put seven kilowatts of rooftop PV in my house, even at a northern latitude like Toronto, where the sun isn't very good in the winter. And, and, and you know, I can still make a reasonable living. Now, will I need the grid or not they need the grid? I probably, being in a colder climate, will always need the grid because I don't want to go down in the middle of winter and I have an issue. But, but if I'm in a milder climate, which would be the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn, I probably would say, you know what? Worst comes to us if the power is not there for certain periods of time. I may not be able to run the air conditioner, but I will live. And, and so it, the probabilistic view, this is what I was telling the ASEAN countries, as you go to more and more renewables, 100% renewable world, if you will, you move from a deterministic Western culture to a probabilistic type of society. And if you don't have that, you can't have controls. You can never control a probabilistic thing to a deterministic world. And that's where we are struggling in the Western world with more wind and solar. We just want everything by the second the way we had it, but we can't get it that way. So there is a probabilistic type of approach. You will be down for some time, but if you've got resilience, you've got microgrid, you've got storage, that is your fallback. That's your fallback. But at the same time, see, control is one thing, but when we have, when each individual is a player here, I mean, we are also talking about complex resilience risk because an accountability, because energy infrastructure provides fuel and electricity to each and every nation and in turn depends on all these, you know, transportation and information technology, communications, finance and the government infrastructure to function all collectively, individually and collectively to work cohesively. So to ensure a resilient nation, we there it's much more different we the more there's a lot more that needs to be done specifically about who is ensuring that the whole system is being made resilience against you know interruptions i mean when we are talking about anybody can produce electricity which is great but now all the there are two components hardware and software involved now who is responsible for if we talk about cybersecurity breaches who is responsible for making sure that the you know cyber they have made their hardware and software resilient that they have taken all the steps to make sure that the, there won't be they have anti malware you know software they have antivirus so you know all those things everything that needs to be done they have you know have effective password protection and all those parameters they have taken care of but if we depend on individuals for the security of the grid a portion of a grid even you know not the whole grid portion of a grid then we are opening up to so many vulnerabilities because individual we cannot depend on individuals accountability you know in a very interconnected, interdependent, integrated systems that we are developing, we have to have a different approach to make manufacturers more responsible, so make the hardware, you know, in a way that you, they are automatically just, we get updates on Windows and all that, that they are automatically getting updates on the security. So we don't have to depend on individuals, you know, action and decision that they have taken all the necessary steps to bring the updates, you know, to effectively do all the updates that are necessary. So these kind of complex challenges, I 
thing that we each nation need to work on because at this point i don't see that happening that you know the manufacturers or software developers are taking the lead and they are being accountable and they are bringing the accountability to each and every action and decision on the software updates we don't see that we are depending on the individuals you know action and decision and that's where i see bigger you know security and resilience challenges emerging correct but i think a lot of good things happening there's a push and pull the vendors today are actually 5 years ahead of where their products are and they want us to come there we are scared to come there because we don't know what it means to come to the point at which they are talking so it's happening if you look at all the home gadgets that you have today it's all being reasonably managed through software updates whether that be a software provider that be a telecom provider whether that's your broadband provider they're constantly sending updates and they're managing it for you now the only layer on the power side will be the updates provided by the utilities but for all practical purposes if i have a 3 kilowatt you know inverter in my house smart inverter it's reasonably will be taken care of by software upgrades why because the codes and standards of the nation if you take the ieee standard you take the iec standard they're evolving by the year in my own career in the last 8 years if you look at the amount of revisions that have taken place in this by raising the bar with every use case it's a constant constant evolution so the question is these patchworks are constantly being sent the notion today is of course that power is non interruptible to me so to speak and i don't want it ever to be interruptible so what is the utility doing as a layer higher than that to manage all this it's a question mark and i'm not saying the utility is ready but i think the boxes that are coming into play are to the standards that we are actually enacting in this country so it's not that if you look at some of the technology developments that we have done it is being certified by ieee by iec to the code now if iec stops progressing in its codifications for future revisions i have a problem but remember this after 7 8 years most of the payback that i ever got has already been achieved so in the electronics business to say it's 40 years is not likely to happen it'll be like a version change up to a point and after that it'll be a model change and when a model change comes today if i look at my router at my house i've already got 10 routers over the last 10 years every two years bell gives it to me for free and says this is the latest one just come and swap it right in their business model they've already recovered the cost or maybe they give it to somebody else i don't know what they do but it's recovered but the utilities have not gone into that level because they don't understand the business model they they have a regulatory type of business business model but not a free market business model the europeans have got it if you look at the market operators of europeans they are playing very well in fact in aggregation in distributed resource management the utility is not even known to the customer it's only in north america that you know we only go with what the utility says for brand recognition in europe actually they don't even know eon which is the wires provider they only know the market provider to whom they subscribe for energy so it's a, it's a big change between the two and i don't know what will take to bring that kind of a retail market opening here but in parts of north america retail market has not taken place as in canada we don't have a retail market except in hot water heaters the only true retail player is the hot water heater even in the gas side we don't so we have to see that and and to me that is the last 
sort of leap of faith as to how do we consume these energy appropriately across multiple fields. I mean, we, we haven't talked on smart energy, but we work on smart energy. So we have an air conditioner that works on gas and also electricity. So in the winter, gas is expensive. So I should be able to get, you know, during the fall season on electricity. In the summer, gas is cheap. I am not heating the house. So I should be able to use that fuel for an objective. So fuel cells will be one, the capstone turbine may be another. So we have not brought fuel arbitrage inside the house. We have a gas pipeline to do certain things. We have an electricity wire to do certain things. We have a water line to do certain things. We have not cross-compounded it inside the house. So smart energy would hopefully allow for even more, in fact, innovations to be able to take a cheaper fuel, which may be gas, to be bringing it to electricity and vice versa. So it's an interesting subject as we move along. Absolutely, it is a very interesting subject. So what are your concluding thoughts on smart grid to smart energy? And what would you like to tell those young curious minds across nations who wants to get involved in solving their nation's complex challenges, especially and energy is the you know backbone of the economic growth across nations. So what where should these young minds put their efforts into bringing that economic prosperity, the foundation of the economic prosperity that uh, they so very much need, you know, for their nation to uh, build on and, you know, then advance other industries. What would you like to tell them? I think this is the best time. They've already started doing it 15 years ago. All the plug and play devices, all the apps, all the various software written, if you go to Redmond, Washington and, and, and other places, they're all being driven by youngsters. The entire transformation of Uberization, uh, you know, Airbnb is all youngsters thinking along this. They need to enter into the space. And thankfully, hardware today is only 10%. Software is 90%. So they have a big, big advantage where my grandson today knows how to operate the iPad without I having to teach him. How did he learn at the age of three? I don't know, but he knows. He played around with it. There's only one button. I don't know what he does, but he can watch his own things. So I think you are going to see the youngsters lead us into the future. All we need to do is to put this big sort of viewing glasses and say, where can they go wrong? And then correct that through policy, through regulation, through certain architecture. So the architecture may still remain, but the essentials, I'll tell you, it's the world for youngsters and not for the aged. It's in fact, my concluding thoughts. Well, we want them to be in the driving seat because they are building the tomorrow and they are the tomorrow. So having said that, thank you so much, Ravi, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on smart grid to smart energy and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the evolution of power grid and uh, the smart energy and the need for you know uh, solving complex challenges and making the grid resilient so even if a single individual can understand the complex challenges facing grids today and in the will face in the coming tomorrow and innovate based on the dis discussion we had today this is kind of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that Thank you. And like Ted Rogers in Canada said, the best is yet to come. Absolutely. The best is yet to come. And uh, having said that, Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology conversions and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that 
risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup webcast or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.